Uh, I'm Vicki Hansen. I'm professor at the University of Dundee and also professor at Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. And I'm here in the position also as vice president of the ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery. And as a representative of ACM, I have to say that I'm absolutely thrilled to um, be able to have said we sponsored this event in part. And I just want to give a very brief thank you to Ursula and her colleagues for such a wonderful event that they put together for the last few days. Okay, so we have some great talks coming up this morning. Our first speaker is June Barrow-Green from the Open University. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, well, I'd like to to also say thank you all very much for getting up and being here. I was sort of expecting one man and his dog, um, so it's, it's really nice to see so many people. Um, and also a big thanks to Ursula um, as well, for we just had a fantastic um, day yesterday, um, and there's, I know, some fantastic talks after mine. Um, and I'm like one of the speakers yesterday, sort of here because Ursula was talking to me about um, the meeting that she was trying to organize and she showed me something which um, you'll have seen often now and you're going to see again and I started wittering in the way that I do and she said that sounds great you're in the program <laughs> and I thought what what did I say <laughs> so anyway so I said well it was really to do with how about um, mathematical archives or mathematics in archives and the kind of some of the things that you can find and I just thought that I, this is just a sort of scattergun approach um, to a few things um, and um, so the title um, it is sort of germane because this is um, the, the folio that you saw yesterday and Ursula mentioned the Königsberg bridges and the thing that struck me was this diagram here and I'll just blow it up and hopefully most of you will recognize that as being uh, the Pythagorean theorem in a particular form. So that's where, where the Pythagoras comes, comes from in my talk and the pacifism bit comes at the end. Um, but uh, so, so that was, and so then when I thought about the Pythagorean theorem and I thought, well, I'm going to be in Oxford, something else that you should certainly see is the amazing um, Euclid, uh, the ninth century Euclid that's here in the Bodleian and uh, has been digitized uh, thanks to funds provided by the Clay Mathematics Institute. And just in case you can't quite see it, that's the, the um, uh, Pythagorean theorem diagram there. Um, and I just really recommend, if you haven't ever looked at this, the, the website's fantastic. You can look at this in really great detail. And it is just amazing. It's ninth century. It's a full edition of Euclid. It's the earliest we have. Um, and it's just marvelous that it's here in Oxford um, and that it's now available for everyone in the world to see. Um, so what other things? Well, so thinking about Euclid made me think about uh, Greek mathematics and then of course I thought about Archimedes' palimpsest and the historians of mathematics among you won't be learning anything new <laughs> about this but maybe some of you haven't heard about this story before. So this, this rather 
tattered looking book. Um, in this form, as you see it here, it's uh, the main writing you can just see on it is as a Byzantine prayer book uh, from the 13th century. But in fact, it's a palimpsest, which means that this parchment was reused to make, make it into a, um, the prayer book. So what they did was wash down what was already there, turn it through uh, 90 degrees and, and rebind re it. And what's underneath was the um, uh, uh, Archimedes, was uh, works on, of Archimedes. And um, this book um, was actually in a monastery um, in Turkey, I think, and it was first photographed by Heiberg in 1906. And it was just incredible, actually, that he was able to read it and see it and do what he could with it. But of course, it was still bound in that form. Now, when he saw it, it was in actually much better condition than that. Than that. Um, and uh, it somehow disappeared from the monastery, and then um, it re-emerged um, later. And um, when it re-emerged, it was in this uh, rather worse condition. Um, I also I put this picture of Archimedes up here because it's just a little pet bugbear of mine. Um, so if I have an opportunity to say something about it, I do. In this particular case, of course, I think most people would realize that this isn't a life, this isn't a portrait from life. Um, but of course, with these Greek mathematicians, what we do often get, we get busts and things of, of them, and people can be slightly seduced into thinking that those were from life as well. And of course, um, they're not. So I just wanted just a little um, sort of reminder about that. But um, so that's why that picture's, picture's there. And in another life, I used to work in an art gallery, but that's another story. Um, so this was the Archimedes Palimpsest. It appeared in um, Christie's in New York um, in 1998, where it was sold for $2 million. And um, and you can see, I think, here the, how the, the writing um, is, is at right angles. Um, and it was bought by an anonymous buyer and has been uh, subject to fantastic restoration and work by scholars from many, many different fields in order to bring, bring the Archimedes works back um, to life. And, um, and I just wanted to sort of draw attention to the fact this is just such a marvelous um, conjunction of modern technology and ancient text. And this particular, uh, these pictures I've, I've got here show um, where they're actually looking at one of the pages of the palimpsest, what happened in between 1906 and when it appeared in Christie's. Somebody thought that it would make it more valuable if it had some pictures in it. So, so, they, um, so they put some pictures in. Um, and they copied them from um, a text of a, sort of the right kind of date. And just by a marvelous, really, piece of sort of serendipity, one of the experts who, when they were first looking at them, thought they recognized one of the pictures. And indeed, they did. They saw it was an exact copy from another, from another text. And this is just, um, the, this slide just sort of shows how they're looking the, the uh, uh, machinery and uh, technology that they're using to kind of go, go sort of behind the, um, the picture and, and see the writing and so on. Um, so, and there's, there's plenty um, out there on the web. They've got a very nice website about it. And again, if you're interested, it's just an, it's just an extraordinary story and it's fantastic that we've actually got this Archimedes um, text. And again, it's like the Euclid one, of course. It's several centuries after Archimedes. Um, one has to remember, actually, it's closer in time to us than it is to Archimedes. Um, and the similar thing with, with the Euclid text, actually. Um, um, 
So moving forward in time a bit, um, the Pell Manuscripts in the British Library. And um, this is sort of out of my period. I should say I'm really, an, I'm really a 19th, early 20th century person. But um, I have uh, a, a postgraduate student who was um, looking at these manuscripts, Rosie Cretney, and um, she was trying to find, she was trying to see whether there was something in these manuscripts that related to some work she was doing on continued fractions. And she was looking for some particular numbers. Well, it turns out that these manuscripts are rather large and rather disorganized. Um, and they've been described by our dear late colleague, Jackie Steddall, 30 substantial volumes, several of which contain as many or three or 400 pages of assorted notes, tables, rough work, and jottings. Many undated, untitled, many folios in the modern volumes contain collections of tiny scraps or fragments, carefully preserved, but in no semblance of order. So if you can imagine trying to go through these and find just a, a sort of sequence of numbers, effectively, what Rosie was looking for, was really rather a hard task. Um, but she is a student at the Open University, and, and people sort of felt, well, really, she should be doing her work at the Open University. Why don't you get... So the suggestion was made to her, well, why don't you get the British Library to digitise the Pell Manuscripts? And then you can sit at your desk and look for these numbers. So Rosie did a little sum in, um, and this was, um, I think it was in 2011, or some, around that time, uh, whereupon the suggestion was withdrawn. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, I mean, again, it's just to sort of draw your attention to some of the problems we face when we're, um, as, as historians of mathematics, trying to find, find things in archives, when you're trying to find connections between things that you can be faced with a great pile of, of unordered material. Um, uh, something else, an, another uh, wonderful project now that's being uh, digitized, the Newton Project. Uh, again, fantastic website, wonderful resource for us historians of maths. And one of the things I think you can see from something like this folio I've shown here, there's lots of things going on. There's diagrams, there's notation, there's writing, and, and actually trying to transcribe something like that and putting it into print is quite a difficult task. So again, it's, it's marvellous that we can, we can actually see the image for ourselves. And um, so far, they've transcribed 6.4 million words. That was the last time I looked at the website. That's, they keep a kind of running total of what, they're, of what they're doing. So, I mean, imagine trying to to transcribe something like that. I mean, and then, you know, you have to make, make sense. Of course, there's text before it and after it and so on. You can, um, uh, you know, you have to put it into context. But it's, again, just to give you an idea of, of some of the sorts of things that historians of, of 17th century mathematics have to, have to deal with. Now I'm going to jump right forward um, and to something that I've been working on. Um, and this was um, a quotation from a talk given by David Hilbert, who was the leading German mathematician of his generation. And he gave this talk in Paris at the International Congress of Mathematicians. And in the talk, he lays out 23 problems, which come a bit extended later. And these Hilbert problems became really and are really famous in, in the history of mathematics and in mathematics. They were the sort of almost like the agenda for pure mathematics for um, people to, to work on. And in the sort of 
prelude to actually the problems. He, he talked a lot about what, what, what was a good problem and so on and so forth. And one of the things he said was this. An old French mathematician said, a mathematical theory not to be considered complete. So he made it so clear, you can explain it to the first man whom you meet on the street. So then the question was, who was the old French mathematician? So we thought, well, and actually, with the, Hilbert, with the anniversary of the Hilbert problems um, in, uh, in the millennium, um, a, lot of, a lot of things were written about the problems and, and Hilbert's, Hilbert's address, but nobody, well, one person at that point addressed the question. So there were various proposals. In 1937, someone suggested it was Lagrange. 2005, someone suggested it was Hamid. Now, the 1889 one, you might think, well, that is a little bit odd because Hilbert's writing in 1900. Well, it turns out, actually, that we found out that Hilbert took it from somebody else as an old French mathematician. And so, some, so Charles' name came up in connection with the previous person who'd used this. So we were still no kind of further forward. So we found, we t it turned out that all of these were wrong. Um, we found that out quite clearly. So what did we find out? Well, we found out that actually the person who it all came to was Ragon. And um, it went through Ketelet, through Charles, through Henry Smith, great uh, professor of mathematics here at Oxford. And it was his talk. He framed it in almost the identical way to Hilbert. Um, and we think it was from him that, that Hilbert got the phrase. But, so that's why he copied it exactly. Um, but one of the things that we found in the correspondence between Jargon and, and Ketelet was that um, Jargon said, and I've often repeated this to my students, but we only had this one letter from Jargon to Ketelet. So we thought, well, um, how, do, we have, do we have evidence for this? And then, of course, I remembered that rather curiously, because I'm a late 19th century person, I had my arm twisted a bit like sort of being here today. I, got, I ended up doing some work on this person, William Henry Fox Talbot. And um, again, who's uh, uh, well known to, to most people as a pioneer in photography. So not the obvious place to be looking for quotes about old French mathematicians. Um, but it turned out that in the correspondence of Fox Talbot, there was a letter from Jargon, this in French, this is an English translation, where he does repeat exactly this. And in fact, Talbot's early career was in mathematics. His first papers he published were in mathematics. And, um, and he had an interest in mathematics, actually, throughout his life. And the last papers he published were in mathematics. And in the course of doing the, my work on Fox Talbot, I, this is something I just can't resist showing, even though it's a little bit left field, was that in 1915, a mathematician writing about English mathematics use Fox Talbot as an example of sort of English mathematics. And he says, well, Fox Talbot now only vaguely remembered in connection with photography. You know, how times change. <laughs> so I thought it's, it's kind of quite interesting. Um, another person, I'm not going to go into this, but it's just sort of quite interesting, Felix Hausdorff, who is really one of the uh, founders of modern topology, also had another, another life, another sort of literary life, um, so the scholars who've been working on his uh, works have had to go through 26,000 pages of manuscripts, but they're also having to deal with his, um, his work as Paul Mongre, um, uh, his, the, the literary side of him. So historians of mathematics get kind of pulled in, in lots, of, lots of different um, directions. So it was just, and they're, they're still um, uh, working on these, on these manuscripts. Um, 
But so now, just for my last few moments, I, I want to get on to my pacifism bit of my talk. And this is um, a diary that I found in, um, well, it was in, in St. John's uh, College in Cambridge of a, came, of a mathematics student. Uh, Francis Perrier White was doing the mathematical tripos in 1915. And his diary for 1915, right up to July 1916, um, is there in St. John's. And it's, he writes about two-thirds of an A4 page every day. So it's an amazing document for somebody like me who's interested in trying to understand how, what sort of mathematics was being taught in Cambridge at the time. And of course, you get lecture lists and so on. But to get a student's perspective, also get the student's perspective on his um, lecturers, so it's quite interesting. Um, and, um, uh, he, and he's really, it, it's full of all kinds of things. But here we have, this is the very first entry in the diary. And actually, what he's doing, he happened, uh, he lived, his parents lived in Islington, actually not very far away as it happens from where I live. Um, and he, he, on this, the first day of the diary, he goes to the V&A to see the Rodin exhibition. And this was an exhibition of Rodin sculptures that Rodin had donated um, to the V&A to honour the French and British soldiers um, fighting in the, um, in the First World War. Um, but it's kind of not a likely place that if you were a Rodin you know, scholar to be thinking, you know, a student, uh, a math student at Cambridge. And th this diary is full of sort of uh, lots of things like that. So I'll we'll point out one or two others. Um, so this is another one. He's also, it turns out, he's very interested in law. So he goes off to the law courts. And so he reports on the, uh, the things that he hears. So he, this, this particular one, he's about to go, he it looks a bit boring. And then he sees somebody, he sees the lawyers coming in with the tackler and various things. He says, oh, ho, look, looks like a libel action. Whoopee. And, and, you know, then he sees Gladys Cooper and actually to find out which she wanted to see who she was. And actually, he didn't think she was very beautiful, even though she was kind of one of the classic beauties of the day and, and so on. So, I mean, there's lots of sort of things here. Um, and then the sort of pacifism side of the story is that he, he is a pacifist himself through religious conviction. And so he goes to all these meetings. So he joined the Union of Democratic Control. This was a, uh, they were set up they, to, um, uh, it wasn't strictly pacifist, it was just to sort of stop interference for government and foreign policy and, and so on. And it was a really important um, a group um, and they were against conscription and, and various things. And the, the other wonderful thing in the diary is that he sticks into the diary all these um, uh, invitations, various bits of paper and stuff. So we actually have these documents. And it's interesting for us as historians of mathematics particularly because G.H. Hardy, who was um, sort of leading British mathematician, pure mathematician of his generation really, um, and um, is, is very much features in this particular, particular story. So we can, and we can trace um, White's, uh, what, what happens to him um, and various other people who are conscientious um, objectors. And in reading the diary, I sort of found out and discovered that actually there were proportionately rather more mathematicians were than one would have expected from the, from the population as a whole. Um, and you see a very clear distinction for White being... Um, the way he's treated in Cambridge, it's an intellectual position. When he goes home to Islington, it's terrible. You know, his parents are really upset and he's going to be white-feathered and, all, you know, it's, a really, it's really quite stark, the sort of difference. So you kind of get interesting things like that. This is kind of interesting because here he's um, writing about something he's heard about Hardy. 
And Hardy's ri writing to Marcel Rees, who he's writing this book um, with. And, and Rees is in... Um, uh, White thinks he's in Copenhagen. Actually, he was in Stockholm. But anyway, so he says, Hardy had occasion to write to him on some mathematical subject. The letter contained a good many mathematical symbols. Also, he mentioned the name of a German worker at the end. The censor got hold of the letter, determined from the German name that it must be a code message, spent hours trying to interpret the symbols as a cipher, and then failing it, he didn't let the letter go through. Um, so this is also um, uh, uh, another um, issue for us, is actually uh, notation and symbols. Uh, for us, looking particularly, I think, for, for historians of earlier period, because there isn't standardized notation. It's a bit like there's non-standard spelling. But with mathematics, it's, it, I, I would hazard a guess to say that it's slightly easier sometimes to work out a word someone's meaning if, you, if the spelling's not quite right compared to if the, if the mathematical symbols are different, or there, there may be a transcription error or something. Um, so. Um, so I think this is a very nice um, example, example of that. Um, so this is another one. He goes, he goes to see um, The Birth of a Nation. Now, this is a very famous film. Very, uh, it's, uh, it's a racist film. It's got, you know, hugely criticized for its kind of content, but for its te the technology that was uh, employed in it um, was really very cutting edge. And so it's kind of celebrated for the tech technological skill, but not, not for the content. But again, I think, you know, historians of film and things wouldn't necessarily think about going to the diary of a, of a Cambridge student to get their, their reaction um, uh, to the film. And, um, and as, you know, one of the things he says here, the pictures were, some of them excellent, but the horses would gallop at about 100 miles an hour and towards the end at about 200. You know, so it's kind of how he's seeing um, the film. And of course, I remember, you know, going to the cinema in those days wasn't quite the same as, as going today. Um, so, um, as far as the conscientious objection uh, side of the story was concerned, White um, uh, has to go up before the tribunals. They have these tribunals for, uh, for people are called up for conscription. And as the war uh, progressed, of course, um, conscription became more and more encompassing. And, um, and so we, we can learn quite, uh, you know, for me, learning about the First World War, it was an amazingly, amazing sort of source in a sense, because, you know, here we have him saying the conscientious cases were reached, soon became evident they wouldn't grant any exemptions. And the chairman asked each appellant whether he drank tea, and if so, whether this did not offend his conscience owing to the tax. I mean, you know, sort of hearing these kinds of, of questions. Um, and then he, he's, um, he's told his appeal's dismissed and he's got to take non-competent service and he asks for leave to appeal further and he's um, re refused. So this is going on in Cambridge. Then he goes home and his father and his sister are disappointed and upset because they think it's going to mean prison for him. And, you know, this is, this is really um, obviously very uh, distressing. Um, he doesn't go to prison, actually. Um, so he, he ends up with the friend's ambulance service. But... Um, and, um, but there's a point during the diary where he thinks, actually, the, the, they have come and arrested Lancelot Hogburn, and he thinks they're going to be coming for him. So he, make, he's, he puts all his library books in a pile in his, in his room, you know, so that they can be taken back to the library by somebody else in case they, they come and um, take him to, to take him to prison. Um, so, um, and then this one, I think, is interesting, because um, here we have White... Um, 
uh, going to the tribunal and listening to various cases and um, he talks about, these are Glowis and Milne, both, both mathematicians, and then he mentions um, Eddington and he says, it's undignified to see the Vice-Chancellor and the Master of Johns pleading to be allowed to keep these men. What is the university coming to? Um, and um, he also in the uh, diary, he, he keeps newspaper clippings as well. And one of the things that we uh, can see from the newspaper clipping is that the university want to give Eddington um, exemption because they want him to carry on working in the observatory. Eddington's a Quaker. He wants to um, uh, he wants it to go on the record that he wants exemption for his um, his beliefs. Um, and so you see this sort of tension there. And um, Eddington uh, is. Uh, of course, well, well known to historians of science and scientists and, and so on, as, as, uh, particularly for his work in um, uh, helping to uh, cement Einstein's uh, theory of, of general relativity with the um, eclipse um, expedition. And, um, and I just thought it was quite appropriate, perhaps, to finish my talk with this, because, of course, this is the centenary of, uh, and very, just very, very recently, of Einstein's theory of, of uh, general rel relativity. And um, it was Eddington's um, uh, expedition uh, to Principe to, uh, where they, they took the photographs of the star and showed that, that the gravitation would actually bend the path of light going round uh, a massive star. Um, and so then, of course, this uh, led me to the Einstein archives online. So that's another fantastic um, archival resource for people working on Einstein or, or just generally um, interested in, uh, in Einstein. Um, and so um, with that, I'll finish. Thank you very much.